Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be here with you this morning virtually, especially if this is your first Sunday engaging with Jericho. I want to extend an extra special welcome to you. My hope is that this is a time when God can meet you where you are and that you have a chance to connect with others in the Jericho community. Uh, If you'd like to request prayer, for example, you can do so at the bottom of your window in the church online platform, for those of you who are using that. Or you can always email the prayer team at prayer at jerichoridge.com. So just before Christmas, my brother wrote me into signing up for a triathlon that's happening this June. So I've since been looking for some of the apparently must-have products that are out there. Of course, there are shoes and shorts and supplements and all that kind of stuff, but the most expensive item by far is a bike. Now, I already have a bike and I've actually used it a lot. I've taken it on lots of trips that are twice or three times as far um, than this leg of the triathlon will be. That bike functions pretty well, actually, and is very practical, but it isn't anything as slick as so many of the bikes that I saw in the video from last year's race. So. I decided to take a look at the bike store down the street just to see what was on offer. And that was a big mistake. I couldn't take my eyes off those rows of gleaming, feather-light, aerodynamic beauties. The salesperson showed me all the various features, the disc brakes, the drivetrains, the shifters, the handlebar contours. Most bikes came with a few select features, but only a few models came with all the features that I suddenly felt were absolutely necessary for me. I had images of myself whizzing along the road, effortlessly pumping the pedals, the wind in my minimal hair as I flew across the finish line. Of course, my bike would be the envy of all the others around me at the race. Suddenly, the bike I had been using for so many years seemed outdated, mediocre at best, not up to the standards of the true athlete I now imagine myself to be. I was able to restrain myself in that moment Uh, letting the salesperson know that I would need some time to think about it, and I did think about it. I thought about those bikes and considered from every angle the question of whether I should buy one. I want to direct uh, our attention this morning to a short passage from the Bible that speaks to exactly what I experienced in that bike shop, how that desire for something new had welled up inside of me and where my imagination went. Let's look at the book of Matthew. This is the first book in the New Testament portion of the Bible and contains one account of four regarding the life and teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at chapter six, verses 19 to 24. This is part of an extended passage of Jesus' teaching, often called the Sermon on the Mount, which is a hard-hitting meditation on Christian ethics and spirituality. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus includes here teaching on money and possessions, which is so deeply interwoven with so much of our human experience. These are Jesus' words in that passage, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I want to take you through a mental exercise for a few moments, and I hope you'll see why shortly. Imagine yourself standing just inside the entrance of the space that you call home. Thoroughly scan the space in your mind. What items do you see in that space? As you consider the items, how does each one make you feel? Frustrated? Indifferent? Proud? Happy? Angry? Perhaps there are other words and feelings that come to mind. And then I would like you to consider how you would feel if something, um, how would you feel if something happened to those items? Particularly those items that you actually have the most positive associations with. How would you feel if you discovered something was broken? Or stolen? Or what if you lent something to someone and it wasn't returned? Could you even imagine yourself giving it away? If there's more to your space than you can see right from the entrance, I want you to continue to walk around your house and ask yourself the same questions. What do you see? What do you feel about it? How would you feel if you didn't have it anymore for whatever reason? In the end, what are the small handful of things that you would say that you absolutely treasure the most? For myself, I have a collection of board games. They take up most of a big closed shelving unit in our living room. They used to be out on display. And I love that because people would come over to our home and they'd often remark on the amazing designs on the packages and the, the sheer number of games that I had. I love to feel proud of them. I often feel like having more to show would be even more impressive. And so the number I have rarely feels like enough. Although I hardly have time to even play a portion of them, I often still feel like more is better. I remember getting a few games for Christmas and excitedly playing them a few times, but within a few days I was looking for expansion sets for the games in order to fill up my shelves even more and make the games more interesting. Even in such a short time, uh, some of the novelty had worn off. Still, if I ever have to even give one away, even when if I don't really play it or enjoy it that much, in order to clear space on the shelf, I can hem and haw for weeks about that decision. So what Jesus is honing in here is uh, asking us to consider the things we treasure. A treasure is something that we love and cherish, and so it's no surprise when Jesus links our hearts with our treasures, when he says that our hearts actually follow those things that we treasure. To treasure something doesn't actually involve only our feelings, and involves our thoughts. And in Jewish thinking of Jesus' day, the heart was also the seat of the will. And so people usually thought of the heart as at the very core of a person's being, as a kind of shorthand for the whole person. So really what Jesus is saying is that what we treasure reflects the deepest realities of ourself. Imagine all your stuff was mounted in a pile, every single thing you owned, and someone else could go through it all. What would they guess about the kind of person you are? About the things that you value, your beliefs, your thoughts, your passions, and the way they you spend your time? I'm willing to bet someone else could fairly accurately actually guess all those things just from your stuff. How does that, pro how does that actually make you feel, having someone go through all your stuff and make that kind of assessment about you? 
The things we possess are one of two kinds of treasures that Jesus speaks about, things on earth. But he also mentions treasures in heaven, which is the things that our possessions can only really hint at. These are the two categories that Jesus gives us to work with, things that can be mislaid, destroyed, or stolen, and things that can never be mislaid, destroyed, or stolen. But what does Jesus actually mean by treasures in heaven, and how do we actually store them up? Well, to treasure something is actually to invest yourself in it, emotionally, mentally, physically. Say you buy something like a couch, for example. New or used, it doesn't really matter. You might spend some time thinking about the purchase ahead of time, perhaps doing some research on the best option for you. And once you bought it, you might become emotionally involved with it. You might really like the shape, the material, the color. And then there are the physical resources it demands, the, the money to buy it in the first place, but just the energy and perhaps some leather or upholstery cleaner to maintain it every now and again. All of this is an investment of time, resources, and mental and physical energy. So when Jesus says to store up treasures in heaven, I think what he means is that he calls us to direct the same kind of time, attention, and energy, and resources to immaterial things, your character, your relationship with God and others, and causes that God cares about and that benefit the world. So then Jesus moves on in his teaching into verses 22 and 23. Jesus uses the function of our eyes as a metaphor for our spiritual condition. If your eye is good and healthy, you'll be able to see everything in the world as it actually is. You'll be able to make out shapes and forms, even in the distance, and know exactly what you're looking at, and then be able to react to it in the proper way. But if your eyes are bad, you can be in trouble. I mean, without my glasses, I don't see the world as it is. And when someone is approaching me, they have to get really close before I can actually see who they are. And in some extreme cases, that could be dangerous to not know who someone is or what they intend. Or an unfamiliar path through the woods could be dangerous if I'm not able to see it clearly and follow it. There might be a ravine down one side that I don't see. So much of life for a sighted person depends on what we can see. And when the sense of sight is not working as it should be, it can be seriously disorienting or even dangerous. So what do we see when we look at the world around us? Do we see the things around us as items to treasure? Do we see things primarily existing as uh, feeding our love of novelty or giving us pleasure or maybe making us look good to other people? Or do we see things that have the potential to be good gifts from God and that are used for our sustenance and enjoyment but which make no bid for our affections? If the eyes of the soul, as Jesus says, are not healthy and we mistake the meaning behind what we see in the world, Jesus says there are places of darkness in our soul, places where the light of God has not yet reached. Jesus then sums up his teaching by stating that having a split loyalty is impossible. Jesus actually says that we can't be the slave of two masters. A slave is someone who's bound to obey the master, but a slave cannot simultaneously obey two masters who are saying contradictory things. Materialism is in direct conflict with loyalty to God. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus asks us to choose. And it's not a choice between slavery and freedom, but a choice between one of two masters, God or money.
I want to be very clear that it's no sin to have money or possessions, but Christian history and the Bible has taught us that the more we have, the more likely it is that these things can actually come to wield ultimate authority in our lives, such that we obey them, we serve them, rather than having them serve our needs and the needs of others as we ourselves serve God. So at this point, you might likely be saying, yeah, but I can't read your minds. Um, But here are a few thoughts that have come to me as I've been processing this topic over the last couple weeks. If you don't hear your own objections in my words here, um, but you want to process some of those things out loud with someone, I'm happy to have a conversation with you. And you can reach me on my email. That's kocoin at gmail.com. I will do my best to listen carefully and respond in ways that will be most helpful to you on your spiritual journey. So you might be thinking that I'm saying that your stuff shouldn't actually make you happy. And that doesn't ring true to you because your stuff does make you happy. And you know what? I, I agree that it can. And hopefully it does. It should actually. We can find happiness in our things because they're pleasurable or because they make our lives easier or they stimulate our thoughts and imaginations. But this experience of happiness in the things around us, it isn't permanent. And God has not designed it to be. Part of the allure of wealth and possessions is that they promise happiness, but we discover that lie when we get bored or something breaks or it isn't as impressive to us and others as it once was. And then not only, we're, we're not only are we unhappy, we actually find ourselves, strangely enough, guarding our stuff. Even if we find ourselves frustrated at, frustrated at it for breaking its supposed promise to us to make us happy. And yet at the same time, we desire more. You might also be saying to yourself, so do I just need to give everything away or nearly everything? And unless you hear God specifically asking you to do that, no, you don't. A certain level of material prosperity is beneficial for well-being. And we shouldn't think that those experiencing poverty are somehow automatically more virtuous or happier than the rest of us. In fact, there's lots of ways that poverty and evil, or poverty and, and, and lack, are evil. They make life harder and God's presence and goodness more challenging to experience. Frequently, the challenge for followers of Jesus becomes determining the line between adequate provision and excess. And this line isn't precise. And it's, it's different for everyone, and it can be different for each life stage even. But in my own experience, I've found I can usually do with less, often much less, than I instinctually think I can. Or maybe you're asking yourself, well, should I not care about my stuff at all? If the danger of things is becoming too attached to them, should we instead seek to cultivate an attitude of indifference or even contempt toward our stuff? Should we not care if things become damaged or they're in disrepair? Is driving a rusted-out beater car, even if we could afford a better one, somehow the sign of true spirituality? I, I don't think so. The opposite of simplicity is not carelessness and wastefulness. Things are given as gifts and meant to be used and stewarded wisely for our use and the benefit of others. Actually, if you think about it, I think that consumeristic mentality, 
not a simplicity mentality is the thing that actually encourages us to be careless and wasteful because we acquire something and then we dispose of it so we can acquire something new. An excess makes us careless and unconcerned about our stuff, especially if we have enough disposable income to just get another whatever it is when we need it in the future. You know, what I've said so far can seem like a message for the affluent only. I have to show my cards here and say that I've never really been in want of anything truly necessary. No clothing, food, or housing. So that shapes my perspective and what simplicity means to me. However, I am convinced that the attitude that Jesus warns us against is not just for people who have a lot of stuff. Whether we have much or we have little, our thoughts can be dominated by that desire for more, more than enough. We want things that excite us and make us look good in front of others, and we're sorely tempted to find too much significance in those things. I think it's a universal human reaction to seeing all of the things in shop windows and in ads on Amazon and Facebook and TV that are tempting us and saying, we can only ask for more. What Jesus is teaching is against this vice of greed and materialism. A vice is any attitude and pattern of behavior that separates us from genuine, joyful relationship with God, and often with others. Each vice has a corresponding virtue that does the opposite, actually, and so it brings us into closer connection with God and others. So whereas greed and materialism is the vice, contentment is the virtue. But you probably know that we can't just decide to be content because if a vice is a pattern of behavior, we can only change it by substituting a different pattern of behavior. So simplicity becomes the pattern of behavior that moves us toward that space of contentment. Think of it as one aspect of the training regimen for our souls. Because what we buy and treasure forms us on the inside. It crafts our desires and allegiances and and it makes us who we are. So if a habit of acquisitiveness shapes us in one way, we need another habit that shapes us in that Godward way. Of course, heavenly treasures are not things we can just buy or acquire. So we can't just adopt a habit of acquiring the right things rather than acquiring the wrong things. We need an opposite practice whereby we strip things away from ourselves so that we can create space for those things that we can't actually acquire. So let me describe some aspects of what I think simplicity means. First, simplicity is ultimately a habit that seeks freedom from immoderate attachment to things so we can instead attach ourselves to God. Simplicity cultivates the great art of letting go. And you know what? On certain days, freedom from stuff sounds pretty good to me. What about you? Have you ever tripped over something lying somewhere around your home and then kind of kicked it to the side in frustration, feeling like you don't even have the freedom to move around inside your own house without falling over or bumping into something? Have you ever held something in your hand and and wondered where you were going to put it because all the closets and the drawers are already full? Have you ever stood and looked around your house on one of those days when somehow everything seems to have found its way out of the closets and cupboards and onto the floors and counters? I expect this is mostly a people with kids thing. 
or wherever you have you ever stood in despair looking at all the boxes and things piled up in a corner of your basement or garage or a corner of a spare room have you ever experienced wading through all the stuff you discover you don't actually need and setting it aside so that the rest of the stuff can fit into the moving van or the storage container whenever I have one of those moments I realize that my stuff is setting the tone for my life and I'm just responding to it with stress, despair, frustration, maybe even resignation. My stuff and my need to have it is controlling me. Second, simplicity is about being available to God and others in the moment because we're not preoccupied by maintaining our things or acquiring new things or maybe even feeling bad that what we have right now isn't enough or isn't good enough. When we give up the time and the emotional energy dedicated to thinking about buying things, buying things, and caring for and cleaning up the things that we've bought, it actually creates margin in our life that we can use to love and serve God and others. I suspect that many, if not all of us, would be surprised at how many minutes each day we actually spend buying things, planning on buying things, or dreaming about buying things. If the purchases are not essential, what else could you actually do with that time? Third, simplicity is a habit that shifts our perspective from what we want to what we've already been given. And simplicity reorients our mind from a place of need and emptiness to a place of recognizing that the fullness of God that is available in Jesus Christ has actually been given to us and entrusted to us. And you know what? When we're in that space, we're less tempted by things we're our, we're less tempted by things that we want because we're already filled up. In the same way that we're less tempted to eat when we're already full, although sometimes I think we still choose to eat more anyway. But the question is, what's filling up your life that will guard against the gnawing desire for more and better? Fourth, a habit of simplicity is a statement of trust in God's provision. This trust nurtures dependency on Christ and relationship with Christ. And in turn, this relationship with Christ empowers us to live that life of simplicity. So what are some expressions of simplicity? Here are some several different real practical options for you. As I go through these, I'd like you to be open to the one thing that you're going to take with you into this week. Number one, you could catalog your stuff. Just choose a single room and write down a list of everything you find. Which ones have clearly improved your life? When is the last time you used each one? How do you feel about each one? Or number two, you could downsize your possessions or declutter. Start with a closet or a drawer. Don't get too crazy or you overwhelm yourself. Ask yourself, what do I truly need? This process can include generosity too. Instead of selling or donating something to a charity, consider someone in your life who might actually need what you have and personally go and give it to them. Eat simple food. Eat the same thing over multiple days or eat meals with few ingredients and minimal preparation. And what will you do with the time you might otherwise spend planning and preparing your meals? Four. Limit choice. This can be a really tough one because we love having choice. 
But what about something as simple as if you're used to having several versions or varieties of a simple product, maybe just choose to buy one. How about this? Number five, buy nothing for a whole week. Buy only those things that would cause you some type of hardship if you didn't buy it, like food. Or maybe buy nothing online for a week. Buying online is maybe one of the easiest ways to acquire, such that we sometimes don't even think about making a purchase and then when we're surprised when it actually arrives at our door because we'd even forgotten we'd ordered it. I hope at least one of these things stuck with you as both a challenge and an opportunity for growth this week. But we can't end just there. Because what I've given you would really only amount to a mere list of techniques for self-improvement. Followers of Christ must look at the example and faith of Jesus. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. Jesus was born into a blue-collar family, so his experience wasn't of having plenty, even if he wasn't desperately poor. And then, when he transitioned into life as a rabbi, it's likely that he could have used that to his financial advantage, but he didn't. He had wealthy women bankrolling his ministry, but he didn't use their money other than to provide for the very basic necessities of himself and his disciples. At times, Jesus said he didn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus' very life, as an exemplar of his own teaching, was one of simplicity, free of the desire for bigger and better and more. Now, when we consider Jesus' life, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to inspire us to live that life or actually make us despair of ever being able to live, the, live that life, to live up to his example. Until we recall the single truly amazing and revolutionary truth about the Christian faith. And remember this, that Jesus lived his life on behalf of each person who calls himself his follower. That perfect life that on my better days I yearn to live has already been lived and Jesus now risen from the dead stands before God the Father in heaven and he pleads on our behalf he pleads that the Father would look at Jesus own perfect life and credit that perfect life to each of his followers as if it were their own so then even on my worst days when I follow the allure of earthly treasures I can approach God by leaning on the faith and perfect life of Jesus. And even on my best days, when I feel like I have this greed thing up against the ropes, I'm reminded that I can't take pride in it because it's not based on my life and effort, but on the life and effort of Jesus in me. It's only when we grasp this truth that we actually have the courage to live as God has intended us to do, has called us to do. Leaving our successes and our failures in God's hands. May God bless each of us and us together as a community of Jericho Ridge as we take these steps of faith into a life of simplicity and contentment.